Hey, Kristen. How are you? Hey, sorry about that. No problem. Welcome to the Open Studio Podcast. The long-awaited meeting. Yeah, I don't think it would be an art podcast if we didn't have to reschedule three times and have <laughs> multiple. I think you're right. Days. I think you're right about that. I think you're and, right. I mean, it's been a year since we last saw each other face to face almost. And I think you've probably had the busiest year of anyone I know. Uh, I have. <laughs> you have a solo show open now and Charlottesville. Yes, it's in Charlottesville at the Cork Hotel and Gallery um, up through October 24th. I'm glad we got to do this now while it's still open. Me too. Um, Me too. Yeah. People, if you get the chance, those paintings are great in person. You should go see them. You also taught through the pandemic at William and Mary. I did. I and did. You had a baby. That's, <laughs> <I did. laughs> that's a lot. I did. Um, yeah, yeah. And I taught at Randolph Macon College too. So wow. I was at William and Mary. And then in uh and that's you know, fall of 2020. Of, yeah. I mean, that's coming off of the summer where you had COVID. And then once you got better, you came and did your residency with us at Mount Gretna. I mean, yes, it's correct. been an incredibly packed year and a half for you. Correct. Um, so let's let's talk about it. Um, I mean, it's an art podcast, so maybe we start with yeah. the paintings. What's going on in the studio? Well, you know, <laughs> that is that is a question that I'm trying to figure out um, in a in a new way. So I was in my studio this morning and. I have new studio mates moving in tomorrow. Um, I was just coordinating with them right, right before signing on. Um, so I have this beautiful space all to myself in the south of Richmond. Um, and I've, I've been there since 2018. Um, I think, yeah, summer, January of 2018, I think. Um, and it's this beautiful space with, with a big window with lots of bars. I've, I've done, I've painted out that window a number of times. Um, and it's my special sacred solitary place. But uh, as you mentioned, I had a daughter, Alice, in um, February, February 1st, 2021. And it's been a life altering event. Um, so the gift of the pandemic was that I had all of this time, um, and I actually had COVID too, mm -hmm. right at the start of the pandemic. So March, 2021, March, 2020, uh, I flew out to Denver to meet a new, my new niece, my brother's child. And we came back with COVID, right. As it was right. You know, the, the day mm -hmm. that the NBA before you knew, <laughs> I stay flew, at home. yeah, that, that insane week 
that insane yeah. week where it was like all the sports teams were canceled, uh, flights from Europe and uh-huh. everywhere were being shut down. Um, but what having COVID and, and we had it, my husband and I had it, my brother and his whole family had it. So it was fairly scary, but what it did was free me from the fear of getting it. I still fear uh-huh. for my loved ones, for my parents especially, but it, it feared it, it freed me from the fear of getting it. So we felt this sort of great motivation and freedom um, after recovering from it. And even during it, I, I wasn't, my husband had it worse with fever and chill and being a little uh-huh. bit more kind of bedridden, but I had a, a little bit more energy. So I literally was like, if I'm going out, I am, yeah. I'm painting, I'm, I'm painting mm-hmm. my way out of this earth. Um, I remember you saying <laughs> something along those lines when we first met and you were still riding that painting high that you had gotten we- from like, when you thought that you, it was like, and it was incredible because I was watching you put out like a painting every other day and they yes. were finished so paintings. I was incredibly prolific because I, I had this sort of, I, I never went to the hospital. It wasn't truly mm-hmm. a near-death experience, but when a whole unit of your family and your husband is in yourself is pretty sick um, with this scary disease that everyone is passing away on of on television um it gave me this sort of new lease on life I I don't know I think of like Matisse being ill and doing his cutouts (laughs) like Mm -hmm. it's just like okay I what is my life about um what do I want it to be about and what what do I love and so it was this I know this isn't the question you asked about what's happening in my studio but I feel like it's this warm-up that I have to get into um well I think that plays into it yeah it's you're coming off a hyper productive period and I know from experience that things come in cycles and momentum gathers and goes away and then there's sort of the task of regathering it and so I'd imagine that as you gained momentum during the COVID time so too having a daughter which congratulations again thank you but it's like well then probably that decentralizes the studio practice a little bit right yeah Um. (laughs) yeah yeah well and it was interesting too because we we had gone to my in-laws have a place on the Potomac or a little tributary off the Potomac and we had gone there because we live in a row house in Richmond and we're like we probably can't quarantine from our neighbors and friends that well. Like we don't want to just, we, we, there, we have this uh-huh. access to beautiful nature. And so I was in this beautiful setting, um, painting with COVID, painting recovered from COVID. But then I, I got pregnant and it was this time pressure. <laughs> I knew my life was going to change. And then I suddenly had all this time. We, we weren't hanging out yeah. with friends or going anywhere or taking any trips. And so I had to switch to online teaching while at William & Mary. And that was a bummer and a, a, a lot of time 
but once that was over in May, it was just like the summer opened up to me and I had time in a way that I never experienced it before. Um, and so I, I painted and painted and painted. I went to Mount Gretna and painted and painted and painted. Um, and then the fall is very prolific in the fall. Um, and then as it kind of came into December and January, I was massive and uncomfortable. <laughs> um, mm. But I painted, I painted on my due date and should have kept painting. Oh, wow. My daughter took, took eight, uh, eight extra days. So it was like, oh, I would, I sort of, wandered over to the museum two blocks from my house the bmfa and like would draw mm -hmm. there but i i was like i psychologically have to like welcome this child and i think as long mm -hmm. as like my easel's out i'm like don't come don't come because <laughs> i know i'm not going to be able to paint again so long-winded uh, for a while long-winded mm -hmm. way of saying not much is going on in my studio. I, I'm learning what is possible for me mm -hmm. in this time of having an eight month old. And I just started teaching printmaking at Randolph Macon. Um, and I was sort of reminded of monotypes. Um, yeah. I did them in college and then I did them, I did a- In Italy and- Yeah, in Italy and-, I, and yeah. I think it was you who introduced me to the bone fold for oh, hand yeah. printing. Um, I yeah. had been using like a wooden spoon or something ridiculous the like that. The bone fold. So and, do you know, do you know Jamie uh, was, Whistler? Yeah, yeah. He I met him. Uh, the, it's funny because I met him shortly after. And okay. to he was like the bone fold is the best yes, and I was like yes. yeah no Kristen already told me about that yes As so <laughs> I did a workshop with him at Bucks County um when I was in a show with him at Art at King Oaks this like amazing mm -hmm. amazing Alex's show place. that I it's, hope comes back <laughs> and it, you it should interview Alex if, if you yeah. are not um but I haven't yet but He's definitely on the list. And but, I was actually out at King's Oaks a few, almost a few months ago now painting with him. And oh, wonderful. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Jealous. Cool. And it was a wild experience because he, he has such a um, unique perspective on this. He had me paint two paintings at the same time and of the same motif and I was working on one. And then because the other one, like you get bored if you paint the same thing yeah. twice. And so all of a sudden I realized that like, huh, sky could be red. And Alex was yeah. like, do it. Because Alex is always like, do it, no matter what I say. Um, oh, and, and he's I so inventive, yeah. Like the complementary of every color I saw. Uh, oh. and but like trying to keep the light, you know? Yeah. And then he was like, you know what? You don't need that and take it out and then put this in. And he's like, you know, that tree over there, that would look good. And I'm just like, what is going on here? Cause I'm a fairly perceptual painter. I sort of, me too. I me work too. things in my studio. Maybe like once I, I go out into the landscape, I paint, maybe I adjust it in the studio, but I wasn't changing the motif that much. And I was just like, 
why? <laughs> and yeah. he's a very curious guy. And it's an entirely different kind of painting, you know, but fascinating. Yeah. Well, and so Jay Noble, at, when I went to Mount mm. Gretna as a student in 2015, that was one of his go out and paint the compliment compliment of every color you see and it was so uncomfortable for me because yeah. I just like I'm like wait no I don't even know I kind of like I don't know I, I think I made it way too analytical because I was like it is a way too in my head task. about it yeah like, but it's it's good is... to be made uncomfortable in painting mm -hmm. but it made me like aware of like well if and it was really confusing because like you see the blue in the sky, right? It mm -hmm. gradates, it gets cooler. And then mm -hmm. I'm like, well, if I'm painting the complement, does that mean it should get warmer? Or should mm -hmm. I try and keep the temperature of the light the same and just switch the locality? And all of a sudden it's just like, your brain is melting as you're painting. And then yes. some weird things start to come into it, you know, that you never yeah. would have allowed yourself otherwise. Yeah. And I think that's sort of, what I've learned from Alex is to let things come in. Um, mm. He's someone, he was one of my principal instructors at Mount Gretna and I stayed in mm -hmm. touch with him after. He's mm -hmm. someone who's been hugely influential for me. Um, and it's just like the openness to surprise is one of the things well, I've gotten from him. Yeah, that's a, that's a beautiful thing. Um, and the fact that you are the agent of the painting. Mm -hmm. you have full agent it's your painting you 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 don't have to abide by any rules of your past instructors or even the, the self rules um that that you make um you know we can get into kind of formulaic mm -hmm. places and so to be shaken up like that is is good i think it's why Mm -hmm. we crave teaching we crave uh that that kind of prodding like uh almost imposing limitations um mm -hmm. or not almost uh, truly imposing limitations that you you've learned to explore within those limitations well let's talk about those rules though i mean i think we come from similar sets of rules uh mm -hmm. that sort of hawthorne on painting build the color spots. Um, yeah, I got it from Scott Noel. How did uh, <laughs> how did you pick up on it? Because it's an interesting it, yep. story. Well, I probably got it from Scott Noel by way of John Lee, who was mm -hmm. uh, John Lee was Scott Noel's was that, student. Yeah, let me say I that another that. way. Yeah, his student. Scott Noel was John Lee's teacher. And John Lee was my teacher. Mm -hmm. um, and I think he has some connection to Henshi. I there's I he hmm. put a picture on Facebook once of like his dad with Henshi or something. I don't know I don't know the and truth, I think the, the I don't real know the, story behind that but I don't know him personally I just know a lot of people who know him and I think he's a his dad was his first painting teacher mm -hmm, so if his correct. dad is connected to Henshi then but I do want to talk about that painting culture at William and Mary because yes there's a good one. Something interesting that happened there where there's uh, a lot of 
Philly painters picked up and moved to Virginia. What? Yes, they did. Do you have any? <laughs> how does that happen per se? Because there aren't too many colleges that um, do that sort of thing. I'm sitting here in the Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Arts, right? And we obviously have painters because the school only teaches four things: teaches mm. painting, sculpture, printmaking, and drawing. Mm. now illustration as well but traditionally four now five mm -hmm. uh but william and mary i mean they teach criminology they teach history they teach <laughs> science right so what is it that inspires like a painting culture at a regular college when most colleges don't have that yeah you know i mean i think it's the instructors um i i think it's who is there and then the, the strong alumni base, there's like kind of a, a group of us that has stayed connected across years. Like I never overlapped with people that I have painting conversations with, um, but that I, I, I either know them from continuing to teach there because um, they both went there and taught there. So kind of run deep <laughs> in mm -hmm. the culture. But um, there's, let me, let me reframe the conversation. I think, I think it has to do with who is there teaching. Um, I think most importantly in my journey, I would attribute John Lee as, as the most influential painter to me. And what he did, or instructor from my time there, um, and Jillian Peterson Craig, I took one semester with her. She was a visiting artist. So she was like just there for a year, or maybe even there for a semester, but I think she's pretty badass. <laughs> um, and, Great. Um, and then a, a bunch of people at who I'm connected with through Mount Gretna. I did that after college and that was pretty mind blowing, but I can, I can get to that on a separate question. Um, but I think John Lee's like love obsession, <laughs> if we can say that, of painting is contagious and paint a uh, love of perception. Um, I took a drawing class with him my sophomore year um, or maybe my freshman year, I'm not sure. Um, that was just pretty life-changing because it was just exciting. It was like, oh, this next to this can be mm -hmm. it. <laughs> and I think, because I get a complex, like, am I just painting and um, I had a complex after college, like, who am I as a painter, kind of separate from the, my lineage? Um, I think we all go, go through that, like how to mash up and shake the martini of all the voices we have in our head and, and come out with something that is, that is us. Um, that's informed by our teachers, but that is um, 
truly are painting language. Um, well, as yeah. someone who's just finishing up here and am currently in that position, I kind of selfishly want to say, what was it that got you through that process and how, yeah. how exactly did, I, I mean, my uh, instinct tells me, oh, just paint through it and it'll happen. But I'm curious as to yeah. what it was for you that really. Yeah, I, I think just paint through it and then trust, trust yourself. So one thing I realized was it, like John Lee wasn't the teacher for, for everyone, you know, <laughs> like it, it's like the teachers that you find kinship with, it's because they either recognize something in you that is akin to them or spark, spark something. Um, it was like his interests were similar to my interests that were innate in me before I arrived there. Um, well, what would, I mean, I know his work and I have a feeling about what that might be, but just for someone who's completely unfamiliar with the painting culture we're describing, what yeah. would that, you said the excitement of his drawing class, what was mm -hmm. exciting about it and those interests that you shared, what were those? I think a teaching about space um, and probably a, a lot of kinship with Hans Hoffman's teaching that the picture plane is dynamic, um, that verticals and horizontals and diagonals are very exciting, that space within a drawing um, or within a painting, space within your perception, um, has a, a vitality, has a ton of life. Um, and creating that same feeling of space on, on 2D um, in two dimensions is exciting. Um, you know, this next to that and the space between this and that. And, and can you really feel it? Can you really make it manifest and make it present? Um, and that's all it ha has to be about. It's like, yeah. it doesn't need, it doesn't. I, I'm I mean, that's already so yeah. much. Yeah, um, I, right, right. You it's can so spend much, your right? life just figuring out what Hoffman might call the push and pull or yeah. the plastic. Oh, we like to throw this word around in like modernist circles, the plasticity. Oh yeah. What the hell word. does that mean? Yeah. Um, I know um, painters who are 20 years in <laughs> and everything they say is about plasticity. And then you say, what is plasticity? And they're like, well, yeah. it, it's that thing. And they can point it's it this. out. You can't but, see me uh, gesticulating, but it's this. <laughs> Um, yeah, um, it's it's that it's that the picture space is so freaking exciting and can mm -hmm. be so dynamic, um, and it doesn't have to be about any narrative, um, mm -hmm. but the narrative of painting and the history of painting and space. 
and color or I, color, you know, whatever, whatever yeah. it is. Um, uh, I was walking in the moment one time and I grew up going to the Met. I've always gone to the Met. And so I was in the MoMA a few months ago for that Cezanne show. And it was actually my first time in the MoMA. Oh, so um, jealous. <laughs> I, it was a great show. But after the Cezanne show, <laughs> I was sort of wandering around like, oh, I've never actually like taken the time to look at this collection just because of its proximity to the Met. And I used to go to the Met three times a week, four times a week when I was studying in New York. And mm. I wasn't going to pay $14 or whatever it is for the mm-hmm. student at the MoMA when I could get into the Met for a penny, you know. Right. Uh, but I went into one of their rooms of like New York school painters and there's this giant Pollock and it physically made me dizzy because yeah. the way it was painted made the paint feel like it was coming out into my space off right. the canvas. And there was like light drips and dark drips and the way the light drips, I mean, in a way it was like that corny, like 3D effect where like yeah. you might see it on Instagram where they do the drawing and take a picture and you can't tell where the drawing stops and the picture begins, but on a much more um, poignant level. I felt like I was almost about to fall over because the painting felt like it was moving toward me. And right. I was like, oh, so that's what they were going on about. <laughs> like, right. I, I kind of got it. And I liked a lot of paintings, but that's what they really meant. And that's sort of the extreme. And I don't think that that needs a narrative attached or a meaning attached or socio-political, like the plaque is going to do nothing for you if that's the painting. And I feel like, especially now, I mean, we're talking about places with painting culture, but even here it's changing to the point where um, we're talking about visual culture and connotation and context and identity politics. And it's like, I don't, dislike those things but that's not the thing that's going to make me dizzy and that's right. not the exciting thing the exciting thing is what the hell is happening in that poet right well and it's you know it's layered too because it feels it probably I mean I'm projecting on to you now but it probably feels like well what is a white male should can I say about those things I have a role mm. in speaking I you know I, I yeah I have a role I have a role as a white woman to to crusade, if you will, for, for a better world for us all. But I think it can feel out of place. Uh, I feel like I'm venturing into dangerous territory, but um, it can. Don't worry. No one listens to this. <laughs> in Israel can... for some reason. <laughs> oh, good. Oh, hello. Um, yeah. There's a painting culture there. It's interesting. Um uh it can feel I don't know it feels too hot to to touch yeah. and I and I yet it have feels... a guess where you're going yeah I mean I, but it, I've been well, in those well, rooms well and what I mean is it feels too hot to touch if like I I was actually asked um, to make a 
painting in response to um, kind of all the monument stuff happening in Richmond uh-huh. and, and race. And, um, and while I marched for those things, I, I want to raise my voice from a position of privilege for those things, um, for a more just society. I felt like what I'm doing is subversive, like drawing out a window, verticals and horizontals Uh and diagonals out a window, creating space with my hands in the 21st century um, is somewhat subversive. or revolution. I don't know. Maybe that's no, I do highly of it, but crazy. I think Um, it sounds right to me, but I also think that what you do as a teacher mm, is mm -hmm. as politically charged as anything. I mean, we're, we're in a time where uh, I just heard from a friend who is going through the years under me that uh, mm-hmm. they are no longer being taught art history from the caves to the um, abstraction, which here had always contained a lot of Native American art and African art and yeah. Asian art, but it, and it was really a world art survey for mm-hmm. the way it was taught because we had a teacher who was very inclusive and very much, but even that was deemed um, sort of uh, stale. Uh, mm. A certain person said that art history has been beaten to death and they replaced it with a class that was about identity politics and bricolage and counter bricolage. And uh, as a painter, I feel maybe that we're in the first time in history where this very powerful visual language is actually accessible to everyone. Yeah. And that's when they stopped teaching it. And yeah. it seems to me counterintuitive that um, the second people of color and women, in fact, yeah. <laughs> our school is mostly women now. Right. Whereas go back a hundred years, women weren't allowed to draw in the same room as the men at the Pennsylvania Academy. Right. And it seems like now that the women are here, it's like, oh no, this is what we used to do. But now it, now we're going to do something different for you. That's extra special. And I think it's maybe a little bit patronizing because, mm-hmm. well, what about this super powerful language that has existed for all of humanity? Right. From the caves to World War II, we said this is one of the most powerful things to exist. And it feels like people other than people who look like me should probably have access to it on the same level that people who look like me have always had access to it. And I don't know how that's a controversial statement, but mm. apparently it is. Mm. Yeah, it's it's wild. I just, I, you know, I think more voices need to be recognized and, and certainly weren't. There were, mm-hmm. you know, I 
hope there were tons more women painters than we knew about or know about, but um, I look now at I don't know, to, I mentioned Jillian Peterson Craig, but I also am like a huge fan of Ruth Miller. Mm -hmm. um, She's fantastic. Yeah, I, and Susan Jane Walp, who I had the privilege to study with when I went to Shavita, um, the Jerusalem Studio School mm -hmm. at Shavita in 2017. Um, you know, so there, I do have these role models. Um, women role models, and I'll throw Perry Schwartz in there too, but um, I, I, I don't know, there's something about, like in, in my show, I have a painting up of apricots that I did in Italy at a separate, in 2019, I got to return. I'm very, very lucky, um, but I, you know, this is changing the subject because <laughs> we can change the subject. I don't want to get you fired. <laughs> but but I think there's something of like there's something to me. So so kind of back to the original question of what's happening now in my studio is that I've been very hungry for painting. I've been um coming as a mother to the recognition of like I want to find more childcare and that's okay. Um, I still love my daughter and I want to be with her um, and watch. I mean, it's so amazing to see a child look at the world with just wonderment, like mm -hmm. and discovery and growing awareness. Like she noticed that she could see me. We have like a mesh on the top of the stroller like an air vent kind of thing. And she noticed that she could see me if she looked up. And it, it, there's a lot of parallels to painting of like just paying Is that what you feel like you're noticing? Doing? Well, well, I, it's, so, so what I've been doing is trying to, um, <laughs> I had a conversation with Brian Rego who, uh, um, who taught me was my principal painting teacher along with Catherine Drabkin at Mount Gretna in 2015 but he was like you have to learn to paint with your eyes like it's it's about seeing and you and that, that's mm -hmm. a mantra we all know that and that's true but I've been like in this time period where I can't readily spend three plus hours painting I notice paintings that's like how they're mm -hmm. all birthed for me is walking around, living in my house, um, or traveling, uh, if I get the opportunity to paint and travel, but, but like looking for these paintings that exist out, out there. So I, I went on a run the other day and I saw this tree against this building and it just had everything that would be in my painting, um, on Park Avenue in Richmond. And, I will go paint that someday. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but I think I can honor the painter in me by noticing it um, mm -hmm. and maybe even jotting it down um, and, and, and waiting until I can go get it. But also by jotting it down, do you mean drawing it or do you mean oh, well, just notating it. that it exists? Notating, notating, uh, just honoring that mm -hmm. 
I saw it and although I may, might not be translating it to canvas, I am honoring it by, by taking notice. Um, mm -hmm. But I, yeah, I've been drawing a ton because like drawing while she naps, monotyping while she naps um, to still, I, the, the point of going on that tangent was just that I don't it's a, a painting is subversive to me because or, or perceptual painting is subversive and there's an apricot painting in my show that I'm, I'm thinking of in particular that I painted in Italy in 2018 or 19 but it's it's like I stood in front of an apricot tree and painted an apricot for three hours over a series of four days or something like it and it's like uh -huh to be it's an awareness it's it's almost meditative I mean painting is difficult it's like different from meditating but it's this like very life-giving thing to me um that I've just come to recognize in these eight months of not being as prolific as I was prior to having a daughter I recognize like there's just a great hunger in me uh -huh. For it and so it's reassuring because I know that that hunger is not going away I yeah I described in in 2015 to go to Mount Gretna I graduated from college in 2012 from William and Mary and and painted a little bit but um wasn't painting like like I have been since since 2015 so there's kind of 2012 to 15 where I was like working at a grocery store and um working with kids with disabilities and just figuring out who I was um uh -huh. and that process is still going on but, um but I was like there's this gremlin that's just like I can't feed it after midnight I have to like yeah I, I the painting gremlin that's just like I demand that you give me time. I demand mm -hmm. that you feed me. I demand that you go out and you stare at an apricot and like marvel at its edges and its colors and the light hitting it and its shape and its weight and its gravity and um, the this to that, that I hope my paintings reveal to others that it is just, they may never pick up a brush, but if they can go throughout their life with a new wonder, a uh -huh. new wonderment, a new eye for discovery, a lot like a child, um, then I've done my job. Well, I remember, I, I know the apricot painting you're talking about, but I also remember uh, you painted the studio seminar house at Mount Gretna. You painted oh, yeah. the day after I painted it. Ah! <laughs> Those paintings. I didn't know that. <laughs> look, oh yeah, you didn't see mine, I didn't see yours. <laughs> and then I saw yours later. And I was like, my painting doesn't look like that. Like I didn't, I saw something entirely different when I looked at that house. Mm. When I looked at that house, those windows were so dark that they, um, sort of were it was the game was sort of those windows mm -hmm. against the wall and the sky 
and the roof okay. and everything else together, right? Those big studio windows that were Yair's yeah. studio, which is funny because he was the last person I had on last episode. Oh, but um, you painted it from farther back in the parking lot. Mm -hmm. And for you, the windows were with the house because the tree in front was so much darker <laughs> than everything that was in my picture. Mm. And so in my picture, there was a dark thing against the light thing. And in your picture of the same motif in the same weather in almost the same light, because you stood five feet behind me, you had mm -hmm. something so dark that the darks of the windows became so light. Mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, that is something that I don't think would be apparent to mm -hmm. what Scott would call a lay person looking mm -hmm. at those paintings. But to people who are sensitive to painting, that's something that would be uh, really like, how the hell does that work? And it's something that only works if you're really paying attention to yeah. the world in front of you. And mm -hmm. so um, well, paying and I, attention is radical. Yeah, it is. It is. And like, you know, everything's so slick right now. Like our, mm -hmm. we're just screens and, you know, what we lost in the pandemic was like human with space, right? Mm -hmm. Was like, or, you know, I'm looking at you now through a Zoom screen and it's, I see you and I hear you and it's a great way to connect, but it's, it's a 2D surface that doesn't mm -hmm. have a lot of dynamism. And, um, you know, missing that, that atmosphere of space that's happening behind my head and behind your head, if we were sitting in the real room mm -hmm. together, the, the space our bodies take up, the and odor Hoffman, of our bodies. <laughs> Hoffman would have a lot to say about like Zoom figure drawing, I think, mm -hmm. uh, because I mean, be you put him on to, you put me onto him and his ideas. Mm. And I've, I recently just finished a book uh, that was his collected writings. Okay, I think yeah. I'll put it out, or notes from his class, or something like that. But it was just a lot of Hoffman talking, and he yeah. said something along the lines of like, um, "Great painting encodes all of our senses. Our eyes mm. can only capture the appearance of light on things, but." Um, plasticity in painting comes when we can make a painting that feels like the way our hands interact with it in space mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the way our smell interacts with it and the way things change and move over time and real and I think this is why he was not a representational painter is he felt like he was painting the world but he was painting his experience of a space rather than the mimetic image mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. as if through a lens. Mm -hmm. And I think now because of digital culture and the predominance of photo condition thought, everything is seen as if through a lens, even when we're painting from life. I know plenty yeah. of people who um, paint photos from life 
let's say. And that's not to be dismissive of their efforts because sure. mm-hmm. Vermeer and Velasquez did that. And sure. they're great. Right. But that's not what, say, Frank Arbach did. Right. You know? And, and it's something that excites like, me. Exactly. It's like, if I, well, I, I don't know who said this in my life, but one of my teachers did. It's like, if it's not exciting to you, you're, the viewer is not going to be exciting, excited. Mm-hmm. Like if, if you're bored, we're certainly bored looking at it. So it's like, you have to be enamored with the space between the tree and the house. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you are, you're a lot of the way closer to convincing your viewer that it's interesting, um, convincing them to be enamored with it. Um, it it's just gotta be exciting to you and so I'd say personally you know because I I have this like you I never answered the question of like how do you paint through your your influences um but I have this like conundrum as I as I was watching the world go into more conceptual content-based socio-political blah 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 Mm -hmm. um you know, it's like, oh, am I super antiquated or do I have a place in the art world? What is the art world? What, 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 what is, what am I dealing with here? Um, and where do I belong? What, what is my voice? Um, and so I had this, like, should I, I don't know, should I forego perception? Should I see what invention will get me? What, like, um, did you and I try just came that? To, I did a little bit, but it ultimately was based on my perception. So a few memory um, paintings from memory and um, paintings based on like I had this atrium space in my apartment in I had this atrium space in my apartment in New Hampshire um, that I painted for two years while I lived there. And was that when you were getting your MFA? Yes, yes, um, up at UNH. Um, That it was like so much ingrained in my psyche. And I had done um, kind of a massive painting that was actually a studio painting. Like um, I, I did have photographs, but I mostly would go out and do plein air, one shot a premier um out mm-hmm. on looking at that space and do multiple 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 like multiple studies and then was able to do this honk and big picture um that's like you know hudson river <laughs> hudson school whatever they are um i think of like a massive grand my my grand canyon picture um after i had done that I had done my thesis show. It was still in my bloodstream um, that I tried one completely from memory of that space. Um, and so really inventive colors. And that's uh, in my show now. Um, I invented the colors. I invented the things, but it was just, it was really verticals and horizontals and that force and counter force. Um, and then just inventing colors and seeing if I could mm-hmm. create a color light that worked. And I'm very happy with that. I, I, I almost destroyed it. I, I think if I hadn't like been moving and leaving grad school, so it was like artificially, I mean, I, I came to a 
sort of an arrival place, but I didn't get to sit in my studio and stew over it. I probably would have destroyed it if I had, but I moved from grad school at that time. So I like put it in a budget rental truck. <laughs> it's huge. Um, it's like 70 by 56 or 70 by 60. I think the biggest painting I've ever done. Um, and I lived with my in-laws for a little bit in that time. So it was like, I didn't get to sit and stare at it and stew in my own like neuroses of if it was done or not, or if it was good, because there's always a volatile period after I finish a painting. That's like, it's, it's like, I might eat my child, not my real child. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I I made this thing and I'm either so self-conscious if it's, if it's like too dissolved or too abstract or to whatever I if I look at it too long I'm a threat to it um because mm-hmm. I, I and I've destroyed some good I wish I didn't either continue or just completely paint over some particularly two paintings in the past um because there's they were at a quote by uh I'm blanking on his name right now but Dickinson's first teacher before Hawthorne at the Arsene's Lake and he said uh it takes two people to make a painting, one to paint it and one to knock the painter out before he can ruin it. Yes. Uh, or something exactly. along those exactly. lines. Exactly. And I feel like I'm getting better at trusting myself because I like my paintings in a more dissolved place or a, a less resolved place um, than I think was approved, uh, approved of in the past um like thinking of school and like oh just you do this for six class sessions because that's what's allotted for it um or because your teacher is standing behind you telling you to keep going to keep seeing and um so arriving in a place where it's like I am pulling your podcast listeners can't see my 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 arm movements but I'm um creating little areas of tension and then or compression or resolution and then the areas around it will will dissolve um to allow like to allow the painting Mm -hmm. to be a lung to breathe to to inhale and exhale so I have these inhale moments where the edge is really sharp or the color spots create a form um, where, they, where they are there, palpably there, and then uh, adjacent to it areas where the material of the paint is, is what's on display um, mm-hmm. and the edges are feathered or there's more scrubbing, more scraping. Um, and it, it, it arrives at an atmosphere that I like that is not completely has a lot of variety not not completely painted all up to a point and I would say my former paintings were kind of all up to a point um and I've gotten a lot more comfortable stopping I think listening to what feels right to my inner self to stop the painting um, do you think that some of that started coming into your thinking in Trivita? Because that's definitely something I associate with um, maybe not Israel himself, but a lot of his students end up with these very 
incredibly atmospheric paintings and they really Correct. understand how to place a shape next to each other place shapes next to each other and then just leave them alone you know because yeah. they work yeah yeah and there's a lot of edge play going on in that school I think too like um arriving at one side of a form and its edge and like how sensuous and interesting you know that one curve can be that one line can be and not worrying about completing the other side of the form mm -hmm. um so it's like this edge meets this edge in this particular moment in this painting and that is so interesting and we don't need the rest um or we mm -hmm. need it you know, a couple other places to, to breathe, um, like a repeated melody or something. But, um, I would say that's something I picked up, picked up there. Um, and I think that I, I see it in Susan Jane Walp's work. Definitely. Um, as well, it's like, she knows what, needs to come together in her painting and what can be scraped down surface. I know she's, or I think she sands a lot or scrapes down, uh -huh. um, but she knows kind of that exact moment of resolution um, that lets the paint be paint and sing as paint and remind you it's a painting. Um, and but but still just depict something um mm -hmm. yeah i think Quenart too uh yeah 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 because well I think... she taught he taught her so, so yeah. he taught her and she taught me so leonard's my grandfather so therefore yeah <laughs> Just as good. Same, yeah, same right. thing. Uh, wouldn't it right. be so nice if it worked that way? I know. <laughs> but you know, it's interesting. I'm just thinking of children like she looks a little bit like me. She looks a little bit like her father. So she looks a little bit like my mom and a little bit like her, my dad, mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. And so it is fun. And maybe that's the answer to your question. Like, how do I paint through my influences? It's like, go on the quest to pick up some more, um, mm -hmm. to see, to get some more voices clanking around in your head. Um, and some will contradict each other or, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll shake them all up. And hopefully what comes out on the other side is a, a nuance of flavor. Yeah. It isn't, I think just derivative that's been my experience too i came into Papa and i was obsessed with dickinson and everything mm -hmm. i did was about painting like dickinson mm -hmm. and it's sort of like trying on some clothes and seeing what fits because a lot of it didn't but yeah. some of it did and then the same thing happened with sickert mm -hmm. and then giotto and corot came into it and corot came in Corot and Mirandi came into it around the time when we met. And oh. you might remember, I was very into Corot. Um, <laughs> yes. I still am. But uh, it, it was uh, interesting because like the parts of Sickert that didn't work for me, that like dot, 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 dot everywhere, 
the mm-hmm. sort of like the mark. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, it, yep. it didn't fit. Like I tried it out. It, it worked. Like it made paintings, but the paintings didn't feel right. And yeah. then, but there was something about the way he structured his image, the way he felt his way through form, the way he um, found the difference between colors next to each other, right? That was highly fascinating to me. And that's still highly fascinating to me. And like all the superficial stuff goes away. There's something Mm -hmm. about Giotto, the way Giotto Mm -hmm. structures the rectangle. And every time I paint an abstraction now, I feel like I'm actually just making a Giotto from copy from memory, <laughs> you know? It's something That's I can't great. get away from anymore. Yeah, and no. I, I love him to death. I would never try and like paint a portrait the way Giotto paints a portrait. Correct. But yeah. the way he places things in the rectangle and the way like that sky, like Giotto paints the sky green sometimes. Yeah. Like, a what? Yeah. But it works next to yeah. like those pink buildings. And yes. Then that oh, yes. And it's just, how does he do that? There's a yellow <laughs> tree and it, it works somehow. And so then going back into the studio, especially I had one that I had done outside in the city. And I was like, huh, what if I made this guy? And it's not green because I didn't have the balls to like put down green. Yeah. But like, just what if I put a little bit more yellow just a little right. bit and it's right. like oh that that works you know yeah. I'm not I'm not quite as radical as I might imagine myself to be but that sky leans towards green as opposed to towards purple and I think that that is somewhat different than the way I normally observe the sky and so I think mm-hmm. that those people like we need those people to sort of give us different lenses through which to see the world, but Mm -hmm. they can't take over seeing, or at least if they're going to, they have to do it for a little bit, but Mm -hmm. they can't dominate our seeing or override it permanently. Yeah. But I think you, you can be encouraged too, because you will individuate, like you, Mm -hmm. you will, you are your own person. You have your own voice. Um, and no matter how overbearing the, like I just think of yeah. parenting, no matter how overbearing the parent is, the teacher is, the teacher in your head is, if, if you keep painting, you will find that inner sense that you know is you. Um, I'm definitely stealing from another podcast right now, but when a very long time ago, Israel Hirschberg did like a savvy painter interview. Uh-huh. Yep. And he uh, mentioned that uh, uh, Johnny Carson, the entire time he was performing, was obsessed with Jack Benny. And everything that Johnny Carson, I mean, you know Israel, I don't, maybe you've heard this anecdote from mm-hmm. a new person, mm-hmm. but everything Johnny Carson did was somehow an imitation of Jack Benny. And to the extent that Johnny Carson couldn't be Jack Benny, he was Johnny Carson. 
Um, and he used that as an analogy for painters. Um, he's, I mean, you look at Balthus's copies of Piera, mm-hmm. or you look at um, Frank Arbach's drawings after Rubens. Mm-hmm. It's like he was a Frank Arbach was obsessed <laughs> with Rubens. Yeah, and, right, right. <laughs> it it doesn't matter because Frank Arbach is Frank Arbach. And um, yeah. as he, my one of my favorite teachers, Peter Van Dyke, used to say, you end up doing the thing that only you can do. And then you realize it's the thing, it's the only thing that you can do, right? Yeah. No one else can do this thing, but well, you can't do anything else either. Yeah. And, and I think it will clamor out of you. Like I think of uh, Mondrian's body of work. It's like, you know, he, <laughs> he was drawing landscapes and, and churches and we knew what they were or <laughs> mm. <laughs> early on, but he tries on all these different forms of painting or Morandi too. He tries on futurism, I, I think. And yeah, try, he tries on clothing. You don't recognize not... early Morandi. You yeah. don't, but then he finds it and it's boom, right. everything's but after. In both of them, right? So they they both keep going. And yes, there's some, well, I don't even, I, I think Mondrian's early work is beautiful. <laughs> Gorgeous. So I'm like, I love oh, wait, it I want to know so about much. that painter too. I want, I want to split you into two men and I want you to keep painting that way. And I want to know what your mature paintings are staying with this, this, mm-hmm. uh, I don't really look at late Montreal, but those uh, early ones, I they oh, but late, every time. no, but 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 I would say there's something so exciting in his late work, his late work too. That's it's just this to that and the space between and how minimal can we get? Um, and I would oh, never and, like I'm thinking why about- it's important. <laughs> yes, no, but, you you'll see it. You'll see but it. But when you'll I see it. No, yeah. I, I, I know it because I find that grid in Giotto. Mm-hmm. Well, and, but and, I may, and, maybe I'm being blasphemous yeah, here, no, but no. I, I love it so much more in Giotto that yeah. like, I understand well, it's why it's, <laughs> I understand it's, that grid yeah. as yeah. something very beautiful, but I'm going to look at the most beautiful version of that grid I can find. Right. And well, that's I in must the early confess. Italians. So there's, there's one Mondrian that's on, uh, you know, like the diamond composition, just turning the rectangle. Mm-hmm. And it just, it, there's like a blue little weight that keeps the canvas spinning. I think it's at the National Gallery. There's like a blue little weight and it, it just propels it to perpetually spin. Um, but, oh crap, that wasn't, ah, what did you say, Josh? It, that wasn't. Uh, that was leading me somewhere that, I, <laughs> that I'm not sure where I'm going. Um, anyway, I'm not, I'll, it'll come to me at midnight tonight when I'm lying in bed. Be like, ah, that's the point I didn't get to make. Um, anytime, you know, you I can, can get edit that, it in after the that fact. Skin, <laughs> that, that anytime you can get that spin. Um, that he gets just by that little blue weight. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it will blow your mind, it, but. 
It's interesting because I didn't, we didn't talk about Mondrian until I got to Mount Gretna. And mm. it's why I think there needs to be a diversity of ideas. I mean, I think that I'm very grateful for the education I've gotten here at the academy. Mm-hmm. And it was incredible to me. And it was incredibly diverse. Uh, don't get me wrong. It went from people like Gorky and yeah. Balthus and Edwin Dickinson to John Singer Sargent to uh, Duccio, you know, as yeah, as wide a range as you could imagine. And our library is massive and right. just every monograph of every artist I've ever known. We have like 17 books on Deep and Corn alone. But at the same time, we always talked about like the picture sort of in tandem with the motif. We talked Mm. about like, oh, this figure, um, maybe there's a way in which the design could include you like merging this figure with this wall or something like Mm. that. But we never, I remember going to Mount Gretna and we had our first grade and that was sort of, I had finally figured out what Scott Noel was on about. And I was doing these paintings that were the best mimetic interpretations of the landscape I had ever done because they were well-designed, but they were also the landscape. And I remember putting up also some figure stuff. Mm. And then I'd think, oh, I got the anatomy as right as I've ever gotten the anatomy. And then we got to the crit. And no one even mentioned that there was a figure in the painting. It was like, this angle is a very interesting angle because of the way it intersects with this vertical and this vertical reinforces the edge of the rectangle. And I went, oh, right. That's not something I was familiar with. And I think that there's a real need for, I say, a more um, diverse set of which is kind of why I'm doing this like what you have to say let's put it on the internet so we can hear it yes because well and I would say that like that's why it's important to pursue opportunities that you can't like going to Mount Gretna going to Shavita go it just I'm so grateful in my own life to widen my pantheon of painting gods um and to form friendships with other painters who talk to me about people I've never heard about or never learned to look at or um you know and you kind of begin to associate like oh this friend is super into Jake Berteau I've never oh let me look at him with was that a Ty Smith reference it was a Ty (laughs) Smith reference (laughs) Big fan. I love Ty. <laughs> He's a great human being. Um, yeah, but and I also born... have never met anyone more into Jake Berto. <laughs> right. Well, oh, if you air this soon, Betty Cunningham has fifty or fifty. That would be amazing. Five hundred dollar prints of his, like his. He made them online for five hundred dollars only. So get your Jake Berto print now. But um, I just bought a little catalog from. 
Betty Cunningham. They had them like used in the library here. Like, oh, sweet. I yeah. was able to grab it for well, like six bucks. It was great. Yes. Get, like getting your hands on as many books as you can, learning, you know, getting books recommended by friends, just, just having these conversations, doing this podcast, learning who other people like and deciding on your own if you if you like it or if you don't but it's like you know walk a mile in someone else's shoes it's like spend a day mm -hmm. in someone else's eyes and see who do they revere um and you can take it or leave it you know you, you don't yeah. have to you can you can disagree but spend enough time looking with their eyes at who they revere and, and really you'll looking. learn yeah and like, really you might and you mentioned Ty. Yeah. Ed, or I mentioned Ty in response yeah. to you, yeah. but um, <laughs> I alluded. I, to I remember uh, seeing his like going to his studio and seeing the thing right before he left, seeing mm -hmm. them in person, and realizing, oh my god! Because if there's one person who you should never look on, look at his drawings on a phone screen. I mean, yes, that they don't. Yes, I mean, I like them still, but only because they remind me of experiencing them in person. I mean, he's someone who will make a drawing with three lines in it, mm -hmm. and on the phone, maybe because of what the camera does, it flattens it into an optical image. But the magic of those drawings is yeah. one line is like somehow five feet behind another line, and there's yeah. no reference to perspectival space. And there's no reference, or maybe a little reference, but like not much. And yeah. I remember Ty telling me things like diagonals create space or <laughs> uh, just talking about line weight for like half an hour, yeah. you yeah, know? Right, right. And, and then you see his work and you're like, oh yeah, because you can create a whole universe with just like three little marks yeah of a pencil. well he was so into I mean Cezanne's drawings were like the watercolors like um that I had never really looked at um mm -hmm. and it's so exciting when a friend shows you it just gets you excited about something um I just had a, a privilege of having a lot of people like that in my life and that are like hey look at this mm -hmm. um and be exhilarated it would be oh my baby's crying <laughs> but i don't i'm fine i don't intervene but i'm distracted um i i it, and you mentioned seeing ty's work in person i think you know, going to see work in person, we just, we live in a well-resourced location of being able to be close to DC, Philly, New York. Mm -hmm. um, and beyond that, just what, what's happening in your own city. Um, if you can go see work in person eh, or work, you know, can go see Giotto in person. It's just an experience that no book can give you a book can remind you of I'm that experience or a book actually, can wet your whistle but it, it's I, like i'm actually <laughs> terrified because i've never been to italy and Go. i've done this whole 
um, I've spent so much of my life in love with Giotto, but mm-hmm. I love Giotto in books in three by five. It's like dating. You're like, wait. And, <laughs> and so I, I feel like I'm, and I make small paintings now. And I feel yeah. like a lot of that is based on like falling in love with reproductions and books. And I'm so terrified of like going to Italy and going, yeah. standing in front of these things and going, oh, I've been doing it all wrong. Or even worse, going, eh, I like them better in the books. Oh, no, 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 no. You will, you will. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't, I'm, I'm not saying that's out. the case, but you will freak out. it's just one of those things where you become so familiar with a distortion of a thing that yeah. I'm not so sure what the thing itself even is. I know that even in books, Giotto delivers, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And well, and I think it can work in that direction. I think you can fall in love with an artist in a book um, and should, mm-hmm. and go see them in person and just be floored. Um, but I think when we write off artists whose work we have, I mean, there's, there's certain criteria, mm-hmm. right? You can, you can write off some things, but certainly Ty's drawing has a power yeah. and a presence standing in front of it, seeing it, seeing the bumps on the paper, yeah. the, the gouache responding to the paper, the charcoal, it, just being with the presence and the material. It's, um, yeah, I mean, it's like having Rothko a real dinner party is... over versus a Zoom dinner party, something uh-huh. <laughs> just, yeah. I found like a pocket-sized Rothko book. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I was just so angry that anyone even made that. Like mm-hmm. Rothko at like yeah. four inches by like five inches. But that's what we're looking at images. <laughs> you know, that's our experience with a little phone. And the, um, but it's just, it's just a, a foretaste of, mm-hmm. you know, of, of what's to come. But um, I thought of my Mondrian thought, so I'm going to share oh, it. Oh, yeah, let, let's um, go for it. So I have a book called like Mondrian and his studio. It's a, it's from Tate, um, the Tate, but there's an image in there and it's like yellow and black. And I can send you a picture if you do like resources with the podcast. I don't know, but it's, there's there's like two horizontals that he like scraped out or like scratched that that aren't um remaining in the painting at their full like blocked in uh-huh. level and i just like am exhilarated by that image and i but i partly feel like this is like maybe an image discovered after his death <laughs> like it's not finished or that he would like not want to be shown because there's such a material presence to the line that is uncharacteristic of most of his work that mm-hmm. that's just a random tan- tangential thought um but well those yeah. Degas bronzes at the Met mm-hmm. I've said those are the art that taught me what gesture was you know, mm. and I, yeah. I think that, I mean, I sculpt as well as paint, although not nearly in the same 
volume. Um, and there's very few sculptors that move me the way a painter does. Like, yeah, I love yeah. sculpture, but um, well, painted that- images have a certain power over me. Me too. And yeah. when I look at those Degas, maybe it's because he was a painter, so he's using the language that most resonates with me as a painter. But when I look at those Degas bronzes, um, or I look at, say, a Bruce Gagné sculpture or something, mm-hmm. it's just like, oh my, like, and those Degas bronzes, they weren't supposed to be made. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wanted, he made them in wax on purpose because he wanted them to melt, mm-hmm. you know? And his family, upon his death, saw an opportunity <laughs> to cash in and uh-huh. had him cash. Uh-huh. And thank God for greedy people because <laughs> yeah, I, I needed mean, those. Well, and I just feel like it's our studio trash that like we can learn the most from. Um, or that, you know, the, the two paintings I'm referring to that are like, way more dissolved than I was ready to be but they were leading the way um you know and so maybe those bronzes are are similar um that it's these things that are like our deepest darkest secrets that can teach us the most about and it I had the thought while you were talking about Degas bronzes of Giacometti and because mm-hmm. I was like, oh, well, what did I, who did I learn Jester from Giacometti? Um, all of his like pencil drawings. Um, but there was a sculpture at, that I saw at the LA County Museum of Art um, that, you know, he does the tall, yeah. lanky, lanky people that have power but they don't they don't arrest me like his drawings of the tall lanky people um Mm -hmm. or you know the the portraits where the woman's face is like so far back in space and so belabored yet effortless yet yeah yeah tortured yet wonderful um but there was this this sculpture at the LA County Museum of Art that was one of his tall men um, or tall figures kind of leaning forward, surrounded by a rectangle um, or in, in, I guess a cube would be a better word for it. Just like little, a little mm-hmm. stick, six sticks or however to, yeah, six sticks, <laughs> um, creating this rectangle upon this tiny little man. And it was a monumental, it was made monumental, even though it was probably 10 inches tall um, mm-hmm. or 24, it was small, um, but it had the same power and presence as the people in the lobby of the Getty that are his tall linky figures. Yeah. Um, there's but something about the rectangle yeah. too. There is something about the, it's every, no, there's everything about the rectangle. <laughs> the it's rectangle like, is everything. I think yeah. we're showing our painter bias here. I and if there are absolutely. any people <laughs> who like do make sculpture in the round, I'm yeah. very sorry, but like, it's funny because you were talking about Jacopetti's tall, lanky people. And I was like, yeah, 
And then you said, and you put them in a rectangle. And I was like, yes, you yes. know, because I, we have the cast hall here and mm. I go in this, the stereotypical, this is the Greek and Roman sculpture and don't get me wrong. It's all good. It's all very good. But then you get the Parthenon friezes mm-hmm. and it's like, I like those so much better. Mm-hmm. And I think it has to do with something about the way in which those um, forms interact with the constraints of the rectangle. Preach. And yes, yeah, there's the rectangle does something for me. Yeah, uh, that I think it doesn't a, happen in the round. I think it might be a Ken Cooley because I have I made my students read like his his notes on color um, so which I is think it's a from, great free resource yeah, if anyone yeah, is listening yeah Ken is great um but I think it's him and he might he's probably stealing from somebody else but it's like we're we're like kind of violently taking a snapshot and not to invoke camera language but we're like cutting this rectangle from reality and we have to contend with what we're doing with the loose ends. And I think Mm -hmm. that's where the exhilaration comes in. It's like, yes, I'm painting this figure, drawing this figure, but it's actually like the triangle between the figure and the corner of the rectangle that I can pump full of space and life that makes the figure alive. that those first four lines of the composition it's something I say every time I I haven't done it much but every time I've had a chance to lecture and teach that's mm-hmm. the first thing I mentioned is the first mark you make is the fifth line of the image mm-hmm. um, because you have your four sides and I think that is something about the painterly temperament. Like, I think that's the one of the reasons why we're painters and not yeah. sculptors is because someone who is sensitive to painting is ex- at least implicitly aware of the rectangle at all times. And right. I remember my first trip to an art museum was, I was 17 years old. I did not go to an art museum for the first 17 years of my life. The first time I went was the Rice Museum in Amsterdam. Oh, and wow. while oh, I was wow. there, yeah, it's a great first art museum to go to. Yeah. I didn't, I had no clue who Rembrandt was. I yeah. walked in and they had on loan from somewhere, I think it might be Sweden. It's one of Scandinavian countries. Uh, they had uh the Oath of Claudius Syphilis, the big, Mm. massive Mm. one. And I just remember going, like it was in the same room as the Night Watch at that time. Mm -hmm. So I remember looking at the Night Watch and thinking like, okay, that's cool. And then turning around and Claudius Syphilis is so much cruder, but it's also so much more bold. And I turned around and I, before I saw what it was, before I saw what the subject matter was, it had that plasticity that we were talking yeah. about, right? And it just entered into my space in a very personal way. Mm-hmm. Um, it didn't make me dizzy like the Pollock did, but it did enter into my space. And I felt the light. And I felt the, like, 
as if I were in that room. And there's something about the way color moves through the rectangle that I realized from then on had a certain power over me. And ideas about architecture were dropped, ideas about graphic design were dropped, and I became a painter. And I started at the Art Students League almost as soon as I came back. And it was, yeah, it was like nothing about that was intellectual. Like I didn't know the rectangle, but there's an awareness implicitly that like those images have power Yes. regardless of whether or not you understand where it comes from. Yeah. Well, because if it was about something intellectual, then we couldn't, and we couldn't, you know, imagine, oh, hey, I have this show up in Charlottesville, go see it. Well, how many people are engaging with my rectangles on the wall in an intellectual way? Some mm-hmm. of them, some of yeah. them know, but you're using all that you know to evoke a feeling. Um, and I, I think it's that experience of being moved. Um, there's a great podcast with on Savvy Painter with Jillian Peterson Craig, who talks about being the experience of being moved. Um, but that's that's what first hooks us. That's what hooks the layman. Um, that's why museums exist. Not all people who go to museums are painters, right? It's uh-huh. it's, it's the experience of being moved. Um, and not being able to put your finger on it. I think, you know, we, we can formally intellectually say, oh, this is working, this is working, this is working, but it's, it goes far beyond that, you know, <laughs> it's- I, it, I agree, but I also <laughs> say, I, there's, um, Working with Peter Van Dyke, he was yeah sort of a scientist when it came to like understanding the algorithms that make painting function. Mm-hmm. And he sort of said something like uh, having two ends of the spectrum, right? And so let's say this is not just for this, but for this example, let's say uh, your value range on one end will be graphic clarity right, Uglo, um, Caravaggio, right, just like boom from across the room, that's a wide value range. The narrow end of that value range, like on the opposite end of the scale, you have atmospheric painting, you have Edwin Dickinson playing with like really one value, there are two values, you have people like Albert Pinkham Ryder on that end, Mm -hmm. you have Mirandi Mirandi. on that end, and so what you do as a painter is you sort of mess with that slider until you find exactly where you need to be. And you can do that with everything. You can do that with your scale, the scale of your shape, the specificity of your shape. Uh, Are you someone who like Mondrian is going to get like that vertical horizontal like, right talk about an analytical that. painter yeah or are you going to be someone like um here's a good example like the specificity of the mapping in a stanley willis mm-hmm. is almost the antithesis of that mm. um except it's functioning on the same internal logic and i feel like um the 
educated painter like is moved by great paintings on an emotional level, but also understands how it is that those moves are made and has the ability to make their own moves. I think that if it's about being moved and there is just emotion, um, then what's the point of going to art school? What are we doing True. when we teach <laughs> our classes? You know, True. I think yeah. it's, it's gotta be like saying that poetry is moving or can be, right? If you're someone who's sensitive to it, um, but you have to know words. You well, know? that's a good. Yeah, well. <laughs> and so I, I think there's <laughs> a I, tendency yeah. towards oversimplification there. Oh yes, and yes. Well, I guess I, there's a freedom in like I think of music. Like I, I know very little. Mm-hmm. Of, I very not. I don't have rhythm, and I dabbled in playing the piano <laughs> for six months of my life in the sixth grade. Um, and the saxophone and just not musically gifted and not able to learn it. I'm teachable probably, but Mm -hmm. not, I didn't take to it. Um, But music is still a big part of my life. And so there's an experience of like, I don't know why this works, but I know, I feel that it works and it makes me the best music makes me emote um Mm -hmm. and and i think the best painting makes us emote um and i'm someone who i've never like i I know friends i've experienced paintings with friends who have a friend of mine stood in front of masacho and the expulsion from paradise and and just broke down crying i've never experienced painting like that um Mm -hmm. I've never cried in front of a painting me neither but I feel like I should have yeah (laughs) well no I I mean I'm yeah I (laughs) I'm someone who shows emotion very privately I think and yeah um, I uh, yeah and but yet I don't know. I watched her experience that painting and I was thinking about all the things, the formal things Masaccio was doing. Mm-hmm. And it, it was like, oh, he's speaking to both of us across centuries, but we're both having very different experiences here. Mm-hmm. Um, that I almost was envious a little bit of like, yeah. oh, she's just, I, she I guess that's just what struck, I was getting. you know? Yeah. I, was, I, I, I would love for it to work that way for me. <laughs> like, yeah. I think that I, it doesn't, and I don't mind that it doesn't most of the time. Uh, I think well, that the most yeah. I've ever gotten though is like sort of like a tug in the gut, right? Those mm-hmm. few mm-hmm. moments that like years later, I remember Claudia, I close my eyes and I can still see Claudia Sophia's. Mm-hmm. I've only seen it once. Mm-hmm. Uh, However, I think that it struck me 
as like a visual field. It it stayed yeah. sort of in my eyes and in my brain. Right. And I don't feel like it made it into a, say, more, uh, like it didn't feel like the way I feel about, say, people. It was still very obviously like painting, yeah. you know? Yeah. That being said, that doesn't mean it wasn't powerful for me. It's just, it was a, I mean, well, and I would say it changed like, probably the way I thought for, about life. But. Right, right. For both of us, I think like the analytical or intellectual side of it is so exhilarating too. Like I'm moved mm-hmm. by like the fact that I know why it's working or that I, I love what they're, what's happening within the rectangle. Mm-hmm. Um, that there's a part that's like really satisfying. I don't know, like doing a puzzle or something. Yeah. Um, Scott talks about what's the game there. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I, I like yeah, figuring doing it out, that. Yeah. Like yeah. looking at a painting and saying like, what are they on about, right? And there's yeah. a way in which so many of them are playing a game I learned from Scott, which is like acting as if it's a woodcut. Everything either goes into like a family of darker shapes or a family of lighter shapes, mm-hmm. especially when you get like those contrajour paintings against the light mm-hmm. and everything against the light is dark and everything in the light is light. And it's this radical like de, um, de-emphasization of like the things between, like the differences between say like the peaches and the plate they sit on and the tabletop because that's all in the light. And then against the silhouette of say the person or Bonard where like everything inside is orange and everything outside is blue. Right. And then even though there's different colors out there, they all, there's a green and there's a yellow and there, but they all average blue. And then everything right. inside aggregates orange, even though there's purple shadows, you know, it's, it's really fun to like, just figure out how it works how it's right. built you right know? but it's also but that's not all it, it is <laughs> <laughs> well yeah it, it it's i think we can get in our own way from just feeling it too mm-hmm. yeah um, by being too dissecting of it oh yeah for sure and i think i'm definitely guilty of that i was at uh, <laughs> yeah, ernie well, saniga's <laughs> place uh-huh. Uh, not too long ago he brought me into the studio and he was like oh what do you think and he pointed at this landscape and so I started talking about oh I love it because of sort of the push and pull of like the way that house is stands out against the sky and then blocks me from entering the space but then the trail on the left goes back into deep and I'm just I realized that he's looking at me like, what the hell are you talking about? And this is Ernie Sanaga. To me, this is one of the great painters working and working right right now. And he's like, I don't know about any of that stuff. I don't think (laughs) about that at all. I was just outside and this was the light and I wanted to get the light. And then I thought maybe there should be a house there. So I added a house. And And I went, oh. (laughs) Incredible. Incredible. Yeah, I've had conversations with him like that too and he's interesting 
I had a fun time like running his dogs with him mm-hmm. <laughs> in his backyard. But um, this most recent Mount Gretna time, he got me thinking. It's a critique I've been chewing on since having the conversation with him. But he was like, I feel like you're a painter, like wearing somebody else's clothes in a color sensibility, like your color sense is is somebody else's clothes. And I don't know if that's true. I don't, I don't think I entirely agree with him, but I, I've had this turn towards just really embracing drawing and really embracing darker work. Um, so uh-huh. a lot of early, a lot of my work is sort of like saturated. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, it's apricot, right? We, we had this conversation. <laughs> we had this conversation almost a year ago. Yes, um, um, you know, it's these these sort of more saturated, brighter, um, looks like happier pictures um, or, or happier color sensibility, um, and it, it it is how I how I see it. Like I'm just mm-hmm. I, I'm I'm I I don't even feel like I'm making up color harmonies like I am just squinting and looking and trying to see what actually is that pink I'm looking at the pillow behind me (laughs) describing like what is that blue that pink that mustard um as I see it and and just directly translate it um but I think there's more agency than that going on but he, he got me thinking and I, I just had this um, a turn towards fall. And, and so I, f- I feel like all my paintings from fall of last year just feel very fall as, as I want them uh-huh. to, as I, the atmosphere of the place, the, the colors of the place. Um, I did a ton of bridge paintings from this one spot that I just got enamored with. Um, I just kept seeing painting after painting and returning to this spot close by my studio overlooking Richmond time and time again. But I also was brave enough and was and had inspiration from Ty to um, like do a gouache wash over gouache wash over um, Arches color block or Arches uh-huh. paper. Um, and I, he, I don't think he was using Arches, but Emily, Emily, Elizabeth um, would. Flood like uh, your flood man elizabeth flood thank you elizabeth emily emily wood is what i went to college with elizabeth flood is um was using arches block paper um Uh and i felt fallen in love with it and then done just gouache washes and then drawings on top of the gouache washes so that the tonal rain I mean even if it's just a line yeah. drawing it's like closer it's not black to white of the paper um and I, as a printmaker you think about that too like what am I printing what color paper do I want um but I created a series of like pencil box mashup paintings is what I call them and they're just it's like black acrylic burnt umber acrylic and then two, like a titanium white and like a, mm-hmm. I don't know, more yellowy titanium. 
um like titanium and those gloss, started I think. around a year ago right yeah yep um, yeah i remember like the first few that you had done and i also remember you telling me about my work but also about your work that yes. the paintings are always like 10 years ahead of the drawings i mean but the, the, draw drawings, the are drawings 10 are years ahead of the yes paintings. yes and uh so i guess sort of what you're probably about to get at is like that if the drawings are happening that way then the paintings are likely to follow is yeah, that where you're or, going or like leaving letting go of color for a little mm -hmm. bit um and i think i don't know i shouldn't even say that i was like if i had to say what i am um like I, I did musical theater growing up and we put mm -hmm. on our little resumes when I mean this is like a resume I was making in seventh grade but it was like um what did you need a resume for at, well grade. I don't know it was like a training <laughs> training us to we did like a little resume and a headshot and then we would go to our audition mm -hmm. uh, audition and sing 16 bars and anyway um but on your resume you put there was singing acting and dancing and you put it in the order that you were best at or that you most wanted to be best at and so I put acting singing dancing I think um and so I think of what that order is for me and I might at, at least in this moment say draftsman painter printmaker um the prints are last for you then yeah at least now mm -hmm. I, there's a separate there's a separation um what I learned in doing printmaking is, is response. Uh, well, I mean, I learned response in painting, certainly, but I learned that I could, that I knew more. I, I used to feel like so, so tied to perception. Like it mm -hmm. had to be there the entire time. It had to be true. I had to. And you can't um, do that with the netting because you have to be in the shop. You have, yeah, you have to, and, and you have, you trust your own instincts to push it, to remember, to, mm -hmm. re to recall and to push the image forward based on what makes a good image. So I think I was able to do that massive grad school painting that I'm talked about because I had done printmaking, um, mm -hmm. because I had the separation from the image, still knowing it was in my being, the looking was there, the memory of the looking was there, but I knew enough about image making that I didn't have to be in front of the motif, um, that I could trust myself or, or that I could invent too, that like Ernie Sanaga, that they just put a house there. I would say I'm not, I'm, I'm still more, I changed my thing. I used to think I wasn't brave enough or I didn't know enough or um, I wasn't good enough or something to, to invent. And now I know I can invent if I want to, but what is happening out there, like just the initial composing, um, what is happening out there is exhilarating enough that it has all I need. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that like if I 
need a tree to be there to pivot the house off of the values of the house to push to push the values of the house lighter then I, I go find a spot with a tree mm-hmm. <laughs> because it's just yeah. the, the, the response to life is that exciting. Um, so in a, I'm printmaking a lot right now because I'm teaching it and learning how to teach it, which is a whole nother ball game, but, um, I am able to do it and pick it up and put it down in a way that painting feels all immersive and, and not super compatible with motherhood at the moment. But, um, it's just strange, uh, yeah. I guess, because the first images of yours I ever encountered were your monotypes. And oh, interesting. Yeah. A lot of our discussions. The most painterly we together. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When we were out at Mount Gretna, we talked about monotype. And then I found your etchings. And then I saw your paintings. Okay. And so I guess I just have this warped perception, but I've always been so enthralled with your prints that I guess it just surprised me that they're Mm. almost an afterthought you know Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. maybe not quite that far but like oh really wow less because yeah they're they're like the first images that come to mind for me but that might just be because of like my own personal experience and the fact that those were the images that popped across my phone screen three years ago when I first saw your work, you know, and it could have nothing to do with the actual, like. Well, and it, it, I mean, I think it's akin to drawing too. Like Mm -hmm. there's something about currently, there's something about taking color out of the equation that allows me in monotype is included in, in my thought process right here, but that allows me to more, f- more fully focus on, it is just about this to that, um, the space between this and that, the space that this occupies. And I think when you just r- reduce it, you can invest more fully in that. And then, you know, on the other side of that mm-hmm. quest, you'll be a better painter. Um, yeah. For sure. I, guess, I mean, it might be awkward going back to color, but uh, I, yeah. Uh, my early exposure to drawing was through my father, who's an architect. So we oh, were wow, yeah. talking about drawing the fig. Like he didn't draw people, you know, but he would be like, oh, I have this like idea for a bot. He, he was like really enthralled with like the box homes, you know? And mm-hmm. so he would, we'd have like little postcard, like post-it notes littering the house with like little perspective drawings. And then um, finding those drawings of yours that were sort of uh, both your etchings with, uh, from Italy with that like solidity of like just this building yeah. against this building against this, but like the stacking of that really yeah. felt to me like oh yeah no I've known those images my entire life oh like, yeah before yeah. I like even in the first 16 years of my life without painting as a presence it was like those images were always around you know mm-hmm. and so there's something about just like the stacking of those buildings that's really resonant for me mm-hmm. I think the wash drawings, as much as I love them, they feel 
like they're part of a painting tradition to me. Mm -hmm. There's something I didn't experience until later, but those etchings feel like exactly what you're talking about. Like what exactly is the space between this and this and this? Yeah. Well, and yeah, there's, I, yeah, I feel very, I'm very attracted to architecture. Again, the the verticals, the horizontals, the diagonals, like they're all Mm -hmm. given, they're all, they're all given and and it, it's often a play of verticals and horizontals and diagonals that it like well it's yeah that causes me to paint a picture um it can be color but like this color that color like three colors mm-hmm. together that caused me to paint a picture, but usually it's like a tree against a building. <laughs> um, I mean, that's the Park Avenue one I'm, I'm talking about wanting to paint. It's just like a knobbly little tree against a building. Um, but there's a series of, there's a painting, there, there's a series of paintings I did at Mount Gretna that was like on that little, block in front of Markwood, um, like a, a little old lady would, would sit on her porch and she was like, always kind of too chatty to me. And I'd be like, oh, you see the headphones? I can't talk to you right now. Um, but she was like, this block used to have all these houses in it and the houses burned down and now it's a park. So that little park area. Oh yeah, I know exactly the park you're talking about. It was like the, a tree against a house, um, but it was the strange pitch of the roof that was like that angle. Like I just, Mm-hmm. that angle yes that I need to paint that but so I I did a little you did a drawing of that first right? I did I well, remember the whole drawing well yes no I I did a, I did a painting that was tiny and it it was too small and it was too rectangle I wanted a square it was just a day of like this is mud and scrape it down and reuse the canvas or something else mm-hmm. um but but it was interesting. Ty like liked that mud, <laughs> but it, it, it's still in my studio. I actually haven't painted over it, but it it doesn't have what I want. Uh-huh. Um, but it's kind of brown and muddy and searching after that angle. So then I got out. I, I either started the painting and still was struggling with it, and then started the drawing painting situation um started drawing the thing because it was like I just it's really about this angle it's Mm -hmm. like this alpine I don't know this a-frame um that against the tree that triangle um is fascinating to me and then of course more is revealed like oh there's like leaves and stuff against the linear nature of the architecture that I then get enthralled with. I, I tell my students, it's like looking at a night sky. Like when you first go out, you, you can't see very much and it's still monumental and alluring and majestic. But the more you stay in the dark, the more you see. Um, and I think painting is like that. And painting, a, like getting invested in a particular motif. I feel like that's something fairly new to me that 
was a, a product of 2020 and, and probably exists further back. But I mean, there's like window motif, there's like grand motifs or um, interests that are seen across my work but returning to a spot, returning to like, I'm going to paint this building over and over and over again. And I'm going to make, I guess I was doing that in New Hampshire, but I had the luxury of time in COVID to like return day after day, after day, after day, um, (laughs) to, to keep mining the motif for all it's worth. Is it, returning to the same painting or is it returning in iteration in iteration yeah and there's you know there's obviously great painting tradition of doing that but mm-hmm. um like I think of there's great painting of, traditions for both well yeah. for both yeah. yeah yeah right but I think of um there, there was a couple Monet's in the 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 ruin, ruin I don't know how to say it but that cathedral in Boston when I it would yeah. go to the the MFA up there. Um, and it was like, he was just in love with the light on that mm-hmm. building. Like he was just in love with it. Um, and I'm in love with this angle. <laughs> I'm going to return to it and return to it and return to it. Um, do yeah. they, when you work in iteration like that, do they feel like they're each their own individual work of art? Or does it feel like you're trying Hmm. the same, like, does it feel like you get one that's good and then that's the painting and then the rest were sort of like leading into that? Or are they all just their own paintings? I think they stand, I think they hold their own. You know, some are sacrificed along the way as a means to an end, but... I think they, they hold, because there are, there are more diverse than I would say Monet's cathedrals are. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just arrive at a spot and then, you know, I'll be to and fro uh, killing the grass beneath the little line <laughs> in front of my easel and back 10 feet from my easel, five feet from my easel. Um, legitimately I've killed <laughs> some grass, but um as I walk, like I'll turn around and I'll be like, oh, why am I not painting that? That's that's the painting I should be painting. Or yeah. I, you know, park at a new location and it just is the night sky that continually unfolds itself. And I keep seeing new painting possibilities the more I return to a particular location. Um, yeah. Um, but it, it, yeah, it's like, I don't know, they all kind of become siblings. It's like they're each their mm-hmm. individual thing that stands on their own, but there's a thread between them. Um, Do the, what's the difference between, I guess, that and the window paintings would be interesting for me? Because in one, you're returning to the same place time after time and coming up with different paintings in the window painting your go- window paintings i feel like a lot of times you're going to different places yeah or maybe i'm wrong but they look like different places but you're trying to find the not the same painting but a similar idea of painting 
they seem sort yeah. of like inverted versions of each other right to yeah, find the same subject in different places over and over first the same place with different subjects over and over yeah well i think the window paintings like they just get like it just gets it to me right it's like here's a vertical here's a diagonal here's a horizontal and here's space beyond um mm -hmm. so it's like i always want to paint my window i mean and and i think it's my most lived environment so it's the paintings I constantly see of like, ah, I should do that. Ah, I should do that. And then when we have the AC units, it's like creates another little layer. Um, and I've just never been one to really make setups. So I, I just sort of, I'm like a hunter gatherer looking for, uh -huh. looking for what to me makes a painting. Um, out there in the world and it's kind of just like right there <laughs> the yeah. windows are like here's everything you like yeah um it's interesting how like that works i feel like you're not looking at the world to make a painting as much as you're looking at paintings and trying to find them in the world like at least mm. for me mm. um there's this story of mirandi mm. and mirandi used to like i didn't know this this is how he found his landscapes to paint from he would go out with re black and white reproductions of corel and he would take a telescope and he would look around his neighborhood until the pattern of light and dark through his telescope looked like looked structured itself similar yeah to the reproduction of Corot sometimes it was Cezanne I, yeah at least this is what the biography the said. lore the may lore may yeah. Be true. <laughs> uh, yeah I have no idea how credible that information is but it was during my uh obsession where I read everything I could find on him that I figured that out and then it makes sense when you look at those paintings mm -hmm. and I feel like uh, those of us who do paint from life, uh, we have sort of a grid in which we walk through to like, and I feel like those windows just so perfectly fit your sensibility and your yeah. aesthetic that it's almost as if paintings told you to paint the windows instead of the windows saying, make us paint into painting. a painting. Yeah, that's it that's probably correct I've never thought of it like that but it, it's I think it resonates with my interests and I'm like oh, I just know I'm gonna have fun if I look at that mm -hmm. <laughs> um I I just I just know I'm gonna have fun um but yeah I have to I've got to think on that that's like I think you're right or, or in part, or, or both and, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, both and. and are, am I right in assuming that they're small or paintings? I think I, I've all, seen some in person, but like no bigger than 25, 30 inches? Yes, yeah. I would say that's, they're like 20, they're probably like, they're probably like 16 by 20 um, mm -hmm. or 
20 by, I do a lot of like 20 by 23 um, or 23 by 23.5. <laughs> um, but those ones are, I think like more like 16 by 20. So I know you have stuff going like down to like 11 by 14 to like yeah. go that size. To- I'm curious because you work in a tradition of modernism or maybe that's mm-hmm. an overgeneralization, yeah, no, no, no. but yeah. I think it's a fair one. I mean, we've been talking about Hoffman. We've been talking about all this Mondrian, right? Right. We're talking about people who make massive paintings. And right. uh, I'm just curious, like how, because I love small paintings. I love like Russian miniatures and I love like uh, a lot of medieval work that's just like this big. Although, I don't know why I bothered because no one can see my hands. Uh, but how does ten that by eight by ten. transition? <laughs> yeah. How how does the translation of those ideas? Do you ever feel stuck by the format or? Yeah. Um, I'm gonna pause. I need to use the restroom. <laughs> so oh, my brain, I, my brain yeah. is elsewhere, but I want to answer your question and um, you know, talk for yeah. however long. But I Sounds will good. I will do it. <laughs> you can edit yeah. that out. <laughs> I can pause this. Yeah. Recording. Do I ever get stuck by the format? Um, you know, I do think I'm a creature of habit. Like I, I like like a comfortable easel easel painting um i one thing about the monotypes is they i i've I've made actually big monotypes not for a long time but they're like five by five or four by five or three by three is those are all squares. I'm a big fan of the square or a slightly off square. But I think mixing up the medium helps me go. And I've done, I've, I've, it's been a while, but I've done like four by six paintings. Um, and actually in grad school, I would just like take canvas scraps and gesso them and like pin them. So like two by two three by three, three by five, you know, the little, little guys. And I was doing that for a while, but I haven't, I actually haven't done that in a while outside of, outside of monotype. Um, I think I feel more comfortable when I like, I don't know, my one like diamond shape palette knife is like my best friend, um, the edge of the edge of that palette knife. And Sometimes it's like, I can't use my palette knife when it's too little <laughs> and it feels unnerving. Um, so going too small is like, oh, I can't, I can't like, feels like I can't negotiate this with the tools that at least are most comfortable. And maybe it's a good exercise to, to return to painting really little. Um, and, and see what happens or really big and, and the tools also don't work. Um, 
so I've, I've done that in my past really little really big there's also a limitation to just like being outside um being in front of the motif that's like or uh schlepping all your stuff to the motif there's a limitation for normal people like us yeah because i'm a planner painter too and i don't go bigger than like 30 inches but antonio lopez garcia and rats brought down those two that two those two easels set up i actually just got um for christmas i got a second easel so that i could do that <laughs> then I also had a child so I haven't done that the, the two easels next to each other with big with the big campus um yeah it's fun to mix it up break break those comfort zones I think well I think we're getting to the time point where like if this file gets too much bigger I'm not gonna yeah. have space for it Perfect. Uh, but I'm hoping uh you if you have any like final thoughts or a takeaway you wanted to leave just something to sort of wrap it up neatly yeah who's who are your who are mostly are your listeners a lot of students um are they i couldn't tell you all over i just yeah. really care about painting um cool. because that's all we talk about so cool. it uh, i gotta listen small, to your podcast new. i've been there's two episodes out i'm it was originally oh, gonna be awesome. weekly but uh life happened life happens <laughs> right yeah. now though it's for some reason i got an email saying it was very popular in israel other than okay. that, I don't really know. A few hundred people That's, listen. Maybe hey, they know something. You will, I'm, I anticipate that you will explode because there are painting podcasts out there. Maybe don't air this, but I think some of them I, I don't care. That's punch. the promise. So, yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't I, edit because I, it drove me crazy listening to this is the reason I started there were certain ones where it was like gap cut cut yeah and it was yeah. like I didn't know if I trusted the hosts on yeah. like what was important and what wasn't and yeah. I also missed the natural flow of conversation yeah and a lot of the things I do is just looking at someone else doing something and going like I want to do that different like I want a yeah. different version yeah of that. yeah yeah, that's awesome. Um, well, I think you're, I think there's a need for it. Um, there's, yeah, it's fun to be, it's fun to be niche sometimes. It's fun to be like, hey, we're perceptual painters or we're painters and we want to talk about what we love and here it is. Um, yeah, final, final thoughts was, I hope you can cut it the part I go to the bathroom. <laughs> Just teasing you. But um, I, ah, whatever, you know, whoever your listeners, whatever your listeners do, I would say one thing 
that I was, I was so grateful for painting over the pandemic because I, I saw this funny meme that was like painting. It was a, a woman painting herself portrait. Might've been like Vichy Lebrun or it was a famous woman self-portrait painting. And it was like before the pandemic painting, during the pandemic painting, after the pandemic painting, um, in, alone in her room by herself. And I was just so, I talked about at the opening of this, like not not having to live with the fear of getting it, post getting it, um, and the motivation to paint. But I was so grateful that I had this thing that gave me so much life that I loved doing that like, yes, I want others to see and experience and have emotional experiences and analytical experiences and see my work. And I love having shows and I loved having openings. And, um, but if nobody ever saw my work, I would still paint. Um, if my work spontaneously combusted after every time I painted, I would still paint because the act of painting is so exhilarating for me and life-giving and fun um, and torturous at the same time, but worth doing. Um, that find what that is for you. It might be painting because you're listening to this podcast, but it might be baking or music or who knows what. But life is fulfilling when you know you're doing exactly what you should be doing. You're doing exactly what you love. You just, you never work a day in your life if you love what you do. Um, and I was just so thankful to have the companion of the act of painting through the past year. Well, thank you. That's a great place to leave it. And thank you for doing awesome. this. It was great to catch up and great to chat yeah thank you for inviting me it was really fun it was really fun and I'm excited to listen and listen to your future episodes thank so you. thank you for doing this Liam yeah but cool. good one and I'll see yeah. you sometime down the road awesome <laughs>